several summers ago when I was a, a graduate student, I took a, a, an intensive Hebrew course at Regent College. Uh, it was one of those deals where it's Monday through Friday, morning until late afternoon, and then hours and hours of homework after that. Um, and it was one of those deals where I was so mentally, emotionally tired, but my body just would not shut down. So I was sitting like tired in my mind, but could not sleep at night. So I decided to build a deck. And not just any deck, but a 650 square foot deck on the back of, of our house. And that ensured that I was very tired at the end of the day. Uh, there's something very satisfying about going to bed tired after you know, investing your life into something that's meaningful or, or, or a good day's work. There's a major difference between being tired and being weary. You know what I'm talking about? A difference between being tired and being weary. Even living with an infant in the house again, you know, I've, I've been tired, I guess for eight months now. I've been really tired. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a kind of tired that I've signed up for. Like, I knew that was going to happen. And in a way, that tiredness is rewarding. It's, there's something, well, yeah, if you're a parent, you know, what are you talking about? But stay with me here. It's just kind of a satisfying tired. Weariness, though, is, a, is another animal altogether. Weariness stems from circumstances that you and I didn't sign up for. Um, chronic illness, relational strife, the weight that we feel of financial debt, uh, the burden that many of us carry of, of guilt and shame. Those, those are things that cause weariness. Tiredness can be slept away. A good vacation or a Sabbath can take care of tiredness. Weariness feels like it just lags on endlessly. There's a saying that says, there's no rest for the weary. No rest for the weary. But I have good news. That saying, according to Jesus in the text we're going to read tonight, is not true. He says that there is rest in himself. But in order to get there, we've kind of got to recap where we've been the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at Matthew chapter 11, and uh, we've witnessed last week Jesus speaking to crowds of people. He asked these people questions about who they thought John the Baptist was. And he asks them questions to get the gears of their minds churning so that they can come up to a conclusion themselves. His questions lead us and the crowd to conclude that John the Baptist was more than just a great guy. In fact, John the Baptist was more than just a prophet. John the Baptist was the promised one who was supposed to come in the spirit of Elijah. So if John, as we looked at last week, is the prophet promised to come in the spirit of Elijah, then Jesus is at one and the same time the Messiah or the Savior and the presence of the living God himself. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God or the reign of God into being. And he said these two shocking statements last week. He said John the Baptist is the greatest man ever to be born of a woman. Greatest ever. Greater than Moses. Greater than Elijah. Greater than David. Greatest. And, he said, the least, the littlest, the smallest in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Are you at least one of those little ones in the kingdom of heaven? Something to think about. Would you stand with me as we read Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. 
Speaking of Jesus, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, uh, these words have a spark of hope, even as they roll off my tongue. You offer rest to the weary. Jesus, we're sometimes reluctant to believe it. And I pray that you would break through whatever's holding us back from receiving your rest, your mercy, your loving kindness, from following you with all of who we are. Holy Spirit, we pray for your ministry, making this word come alive in our hearts and our minds. Help us to act with courage and conviction and with great joy. Amen. You may be seated. Wow, way to start off with a word of judgment there, huh? Well, let's, let's just back up a little bit and remember where we're at in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, from the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we have seen Jesus portrayed primarily as a Savior. In fact, in the very first chapter of, uh, of the Gospel, Gabriel the angel comes to Joseph, the, the man betrothed to Mary who would have Jesus, said, you're to name that boy Yeshua. Or Jesus, which means God saves. Jesus himself, when he begins his public ministry, proclaims the arrival of the kingdom of God. He performs healings and exorcisms and acts of grace. Jesus is a rescuer. Yet sometimes people are oblivious at best or downright prideful at worst and don't realize how badly we need rescue in the first place. So out of grace and love, really, Jesus gives this particular group a warning. Verses 20 through 24 in the text tonight are a warning of judgment. These are sobering words. And I think as 
American Christians, we in particular need to perk up our ears to what Jesus has to say. You know, regardless of how our government or our culture actually works, much of the world still views us as a Christian nation. Our currency still has, in God we trust, written on it. We still host a national prayer breakfast where the president attends every year. There are Christian churches in almost every major town of our country. And none of those things mean that we are indeed a a nation of disciples of Christ. But it at least suggests that if a person wanted to know about Jesus, they have access to the scriptures and to communities of believers of Jesus all throughout our country. Not a lot to hold them back. Okay, so Jesus now turns to this crowd of people who is following him, but not necessarily changing their lives Right? They're kind of groupies. They're just following him because he's doing cool stuff and sometimes he multiplies food and feeds everybody. But his point is they're not necessarily repenting of their old way of life. Jesus had traveled through the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He taught there personally. In fact, Andrew, Peter, and Philip, all of Jesus' disciples, were from Bethsaida. But people there hadn't changed. So Jesus gives them a warning. He says, On the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now Tyre and Sidon were seaports to the northwest. They were in Gentile territory. And they were notorious for sex trafficking and unscrupulous business practices and idolatry. So think how shocking it would be when Jesus is talking to these crowds and he mentions Chorazin and Bethsaida, two towns they know, two towns they know that Jesus has been to, to Bethsaida where his disciples, three of them are from, and he says, you know what, those pagan nations up there that you look down your nose upon, it's going to be better for them. In fact, if, if they saw the miracles that you guys saw, if they heard the teaching that you guys got, they would repent. Next, Jesus ups the ante and denounces Capernaum. You know, Capernaum was Jesus' home base as an adult. He was born in Bethlehem, went down to Egypt and raised as a kid in Nazareth. But, uh, but, but Capernaum was the place where as an adult was kind of his, his home base. In fact, in chapters 8 and 9 where we saw all of those mighty deeds of Jesus, most of those, the setting for most of those was Capernaum. I mean, Jesus literally was Capernaum's homeboy. Like, he he knew the people probably down the street. Like, you know, you go to the baker, I want some flatbread, and, 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 you know, I I want to buy the sheep at the market. Jesus, like, he knew these people by name. And he says something, uh, well, and people in Capernaum, let me just say this, they loved that Jesus was kind of from there. In fact, they had slogans like, Capernaum, the home of... Superman, Jesus the Superman, or Jesus the Wonder Worker. They're really proud that Jesus was from their community and made it his home base. Kind of like people from Ferndale are proud of the home of Jake Locker, right? Or, uh, you know, I, I walk with Jake Locker's grandma or, or whoever. You know, it's like, it's like this little bit of celebrity going on. So what is the sin of Capernaum? What's their problem? There's a clue in what Jesus says. He says, and you, Capernaum, You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. What's that all about? That's a scriptural allusion to Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 15. 
And in that text in Isaiah, the king of Babylon is full of himself, full of pride. He says that he will ascend to heaven and he will put his throne over the stars of heaven. I quote, this is what the king of Babylon says, I will make myself like the most high. Well, God informs this prideful king what's up. He says, how you have fallen, morning star of the dawn, you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Jesus warns Capernaum of their pride. They're prideful because they have this connection with Jesus. They're prideful because they're a town of wealth. And they're prideful because Capernaum is kind of this, on this route, this trade route. So they, they think they're really cultured and cool. Kind of like Seattle looks like down on us in Bellingham. You know, because it's a seaport, it's a hub. All these cool cultures are tra- converging on there. And they think, you know, we're so worldly. We have better restaurants than you guys. And they do. But uh, anyway... So that, that was kind of their pride issue. So Jesus has this... He, take, he takes issue with these places that are full of pride. Shocking statement. He says it will be better for the people of Sodom. You remember the story of Sodom, right? Like, completely wicked place and God sends down fire and brimstone like burns up Sodom. He said if Sodom had experienced the teaching that you did from me and and the mighty deeds that I performed in your witness, Sodom would still be around. I mean, that is a shocking statement. Because they would have repented. Wow, so what do you do with that, right? That's, That's pretty hardcore what Jesus is saying. Well, let me make two observations. First... Jesus, in this passage, is not teaching a systematic theology class. He's not trying to say all there is to say about who's saved and who's not saved and how salvation works. What he's doing is trying to communicate reality because he loves people so much. He taught about the kingdom of God in his Sermon on the Mount. He practiced the kingdom of God in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. He displayed the power of the kingdom. And now he's facing a particularly tough crowd who even in the presence of God's Son will not repent. So out of love, he gives them a warning. That's what this is about. Second, anytime Jesus speaks of judgment in Matthew, you need to perk up to who he's talking to. Jesus always pronounces judgment on the people who ought to know better. So he talks to the religious leaders who are experts in the scriptures because the scriptures ought to point them to who Jesus really is. And he's really hard on the crowds where he has spoken and where he has performed mighty deeds. They've seen him in person. What excuse do they have now? One thing you don't see Jesus doing is pronouncing judgment on pagan people who don't have the scriptures and had never seen or heard him do those things. Jesus thanks his Father in heaven for this fact. You've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants or little ones or the least of these. Remember, Even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So what's Jesus saying in that statement? Is he advocating for anti-intellectualism? 
Or is he suggesting that we put our books away and stop listening to sermons like this and just be naive? Is that... That doesn't really jive with who Jesus is. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to justify that line of thinking when you consider that Jesus was brilliant and he knew the scriptures really well and people were amazed at what? His teaching. I don't think he's advocating for anti-intellectualism and I can take that a step further. You look at the Apostle Paul who had a first-class education in languages and culture and an education in Torah that one scholar says was like having not only a Ph.D., but doing postdoctoral studies in Torah. And that's how well uh, these rabbis would know the text. And that man, Paul the Apostle, who's that educated, writes this in 1 Corinthians 1. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. There were not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the, uh, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. Highly educated Paul said that. Highly competent and brilliant Jesus, Son of God, says that the Father is hiding revelation of himself from the wise and intelligent and revealing it to infants or little ones. What is this about? The intelligence and wisdom that Jesus and Paul are denouncing, or what they're talking about, is a reference to the kind of intelligence of the world, or wisdom of the world, which is self-reliance. It is a wisdom of the world organized around anything else but God. And I think C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job at imagining this type of thing in his last book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Last Battle. In The Last Battle, there are the dwarves. And what do the dwarves always say? The dwarves are for the dwarves. The dwarves are for the dwarves, meaning that they're so cynical, so wise in their own estimation, that they don't take sides on anybody's. They're not on anybody's team. Alright, we've been burned so many times, we know what's up. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You guys have your little battles, duke it out. The dwarves are for the dwarves. So in the end, the Christ figure, Aslan, comes to judge the rebellion, and he rescues those who put their trust in him. And right before the door closes on Narnia, before the judgment hits, the dwarves are stuck in this dark shack, and the children beg Aslan, can't you just reveal yourself to the dwarves? So he tries. He tries to give them good gifts. He tries to be gracious. And the dwarves, so cynical, so afraid of being taken in. That's their line. They're afraid of being taken in. That they take all of his good gifts and they warp them. They don't believe that they could really be free or good. And they twist them. And their worldly wisdom keeps them from receiving the good gift of life. So the idea is this. The Father hides revelation from the, I think I'm wise enough to thrive without Jesus, and He gives it to thee, I need God for my every existence, and I know it. 
has nothing to do with your real intelligence or education. It has everything to do with where you, you place your stock in your faith, your trust. The worldly wise, self-sufficiency. That's what rules the day. But the one that the Father reveals himself to is the one who knows their need for Jesus. Kind of sounds like blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Okay. Now, think about this as people gathered in a church right now, singing songs of praise of worship, praying prayers to God. You're hearing the witness of Jesus the Christ. You're hearing apostolic teaching right now. And we're about to participate in communion with Jesus. This should make us pause and take inventory. This warning, it's a gift to us. Are we going through the motions? Do we claim Jesus as our own and yet fail to actually trust that the way he says to live is the way that leads to life? If we are prideful and arrogant like the people of Capernaum, good news, we are warned. But, if we realize that right now we are weary, if you recognize your pride and want to turn, if you feel like you are poor in spirit, you are lost in the shuffle, then hear the good news. Jesus, the one you are hearing about right now, the one who we worship, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, who was crucified, died, and was buried, who rose after three days in the grave, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who rules now and forevermore. That Jesus is the one through whom we know the Father. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, Let's be honest about that statement. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone that the Son wills to reveal Him. You know, from a Western 21st century kind of kumbaya, Bellingham cultural perspective, that sounds really lame and exclusive, doesn't it? It's offensive, and it is in a way. It means that Jesus is the only one or the only way we may come to know God the Father. But let me just make this caveat. Again, Jesus is not teaching a systematic theology course on soteriology, on how you can be saved. He's not saying all there is to say about salvation in this one sentence. And we would be wise not to base our whole theology on one sentence, right? We have no idea how Jesus will reveal the Father. We have no idea. Now, we know how He most often works. Maybe you came to know the Father through Jesus the Son in a church. Or from someone who knew Jesus and shared that with you. And my theology says that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is involved in this. Maybe you came to faith through Scripture. And I know many of our brothers and sisters in North Africa and the Middle East, number one conversion method, dreams and visions. Maybe you came to faith because someone expressed Jesus' love. Maybe they were His hands before they were His mouthpiece for you. There are many ways that the Son reveals the Father to people. 
And there are ways that are just crazy, like, like the stories of missionaries who go to a group of people that have never been westernized before, and they find that this tribe of people has already heard of a triune God who had a son who died for them, and they didn't know his name was Jesus. Like, thank you. And then they get the rest of the story because they get the scriptures. I mean, this stuff happens. We have no idea how the son will reveal the father. That's really awesome. That gives me a lot of hope. Is it offensive to say Jesus is the only way? Maybe. It's especially offensive, though, if you and I come off as though we did something special to receive that revelation. It's especially offensive if you and I try and shove that down people's throats as though it wasn't a gift in the first place that God revealed himself to us. I mean, do you know why you have faith right now? Can you say it's because of your goodness or your merit? It's freely given. So that's, I think that's the kind of gentleness we need to have with others. Of course I want people to know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, you want the world to know Jesus. Because he's awesome. He's, he's it. But it should be done with joy and generosity and humility. Rather than from a stance of power. In the end though, this passage is not so much about who's saved or who's not. Not so much about evangelism even. This passage is about the lost being found. And I think it's about leadership. Everyone, everyone needs a leader. Whether you recognize it or not. The oppressed, the cynical, the frustrated, typically complain about whoever is in power. And always look forward to the next election. The powerful... The privileged love to have the power, but it stresses them out so much because they, they do everything in their power not to lose it. How do you hold on to it? And both sides, I think, are longing for a better way, for a better system. The whole system is screwed up. We all want a leader that we can really trust, who really has our best interests in mind. The Israelites in the first century knew exactly what that leader looked like. In fact, there was a prophecy about it. One like Moses was supposed to come. Moses, who is considered the most humble man ever to live. Who spoke face to face with God. Who the Israelites would say, you go up on the mountain with God, he freaks us out. But then, when you come down with that glow, you tell us about how he is. How is God the Father? You go up and get the laws, and then relate it to us. They were longing for someone like Moses. Some of you see where I'm going with this. Jesus is now saying he is the one who reveals the Father. Used to be Moses, that was his job. Now Jesus is saying, I am the one that reveals the Father. He is the leader that we've been looking for. Are you weary? Jesus says, come to me and rest. Now earlier, Julia read from Exodus 33. Listen to this part of the scripture afresh. Moses speaking. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. I'm sick of leading them. Uh, and, and he says, my, and God says to Moses, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. God says to Moses, now listen to Jesus' words. Come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an open invitation. And I love what Eugene Peterson has done with this passage in his translation. Listen. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live lightly and freely. What an invitation. Jesus is opening the doors to anyone who would humble themselves to trust Him, to follow Him. Now, got to admit, rest seems really nice, especially to those of you who are tired this evening. Your eyes are shut right now, I can see it. Um, but rest in the biblical sense is not a nap. Rest in the biblical sense is actually a theological term. And it stems from uh, deep within the story of God in the life of Israel. Rest in the Old Testament is a term that's synonymous with salvation and multifaceted peace or shalom. Rest means living at peace with God and living at peace with our neighbors. When rest comes, when the promise of rest comes, it's the day when the weapons of war will be turned into tools for gardening and blessing. Rest is when we take off our masks and stop telling the white lies that we tell to keep up an image of who we want people to think we are because we're too ashamed of who we really are. Rest is the fullness of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is offering it in himself. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke, of course, is this wooden collar used to harness the strength of beasts of burden. But it's also how the rabbis of old referred to the Torah or the law. You know, the term Torah is uh, uh, for the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Torah. Um, so that's the term that they had. Now, prepare to have your mind blown. Check this out. This is what one Jewish scholar says about Torah. Torah is all God has made, is how God has made known His nature. Okay, Torah is how God makes known His nature, His character, and His purpose. It's how we know what He would have me be and do. Torah, or the rabbi's yoke, is all that God's revelation about who He is. So the sages... And the Pharisees and the rabbis taught Torah. And they would say, come follow me. Take on the yoke of Torah and I'll show you how to learn it. Because that is God's fullest revelation. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is saying, I am the full revelation of God. I am the fullest expression of God. Of God. Take on my yoke. Not some secondhand teaching. Take up the real deal. Did you know that if you take an untrained young ox and you throw a single yoke on it, it will overwork itself. It will probably mess up the field and it could hurt the operator or the equipment. So what they would often do is put it on a double yoke 
with an older, experienced ox, and they put the young one with it. And the young one will try and go too fast. The old one's like, chill out, little man, and, and keep, it, keep it going. And the, the, the old ox will, will teach it how to go straight and when to rest and when to go and, and teach it the commands of the, the, the reins. So a farmer would take a young ox and an experienced ox and put on a double yoke. They would work together and they would share the load. And Jesus is offering us to be yoked up with Him. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, maybe. This is what I was thinking this week. In one sense, that doesn't sound like much of an offer. I don't want to wear a yoke. And if you feel weary... You want a vacation, right? You don't want to go to work in the field. That's not really the image I'm looking for. Now, vacations and naps and Sabbaths, all God's gifts, all good things, and all helpful when you're tired. Not real helpful when you're weary. Because in the end, naps and vacations and Sabbaths can become Empty and temporary. The reality is that you and I are under some yoke, whether we think we are or not. Some teaching, some master. Sometimes it's our own inadequacy. Sometimes it's our own drive because we think we have to perform. Sometimes it's maybe we sold our soul to some company we work for and it just just drives us into the ground. But we all wear a yoke. And what Jesus is offering is to take on His yoke. And to walk with us and to share the load. The creator of life is offering to mentor you and me in life. That's a great deal. I bet you he knows how to do it. Like the wise older ox, he keeps us from leaving a wake of destruction in our path. He will lead us to lead meaningful lives. He will keep us from hard charging and overdoing it. While showing us the natural rhythms of grace and love. It's a great offer. What Jesus is saying then is, yeah, there is rest for the weary. There is rest for the weary. That rest is not found in a set of rules, even the best rules. If you're yoked to Jesus, if you taste the good life, I guarantee you, the way you'll start living is better than any rules could dictate anyway. And rest is not primarily found in a philosophy of life. It's found in the person of Jesus. But if you're yoked to Jesus, I guarantee your philosophy of life will change. Your outlook will be different. Rest is not found in a political party or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And rest is not found in running from your problems. If this passage is telling us anything, it's that Jesus is the revelation of God the Father. And rest is found in Him alone. So if you're here today and you're convicted of your own pride, self-sufficiency, come to Jesus. His yoke. Take on His yoke and find rest. And if you're here today and you feel inadequate and overwhelmed, judged, or you feel a tad judgmental, come to Jesus. Take on His yoke. Receive His rest. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus, that you are strong enough to, uh, to warn us that you are the kind of, uh, of God and leader who will say the hard things to wake us up from our apathy and malaise. Holy Spirit, we pray for that ministry to continue in our hearts this evening if we 
are spiritually asleep to you. And at the same time, Jesus, I'm so thankful that you don't say those things to leave us guilty and shame-ridden, but then you open your arms wide and say, follow me. Trust me, and you, Lord, you, you, you offer us rest. Lord, help us to, to trust you. Help us to take off the yoke of the things that are driving us, the things that are killing us. To put on your instruction, your lordship, your teaching, your grace, your mercy. Pray for uh, uh, visions of creativity and how that might look for each one here. What a next step might be. Lord, speak to us about this in our hearts and in the scriptures as we read them in, in in the community that we share with one another. Help us to enter into your rest. Amen.